Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And welcome to the History of England, episode 266, Mary, bloody or otherwise. And welcome also to episode 6.1, because this is the start of a new series, series 6, the late Tudors covering the period 1554 to 1603, the reigns of Mary and Elizabeth, basically. For the first 14 episodes, we are into the Counter-Reformation the story of Bloody Mary, the Tudor who usurped the throne from Queen Jane. Mary is a complicated figure. Rather tragic in many ways, a conscientious kind of person who really wanted to do her duty, and yet her reign ended in chaos. Bloody Mary to many, a martyr to others, one of those people whose reputation many have sought to rescue from the fires that she lit. As I discuss in episode 279, when we review the tumultuous six years of her reign. And also shouldn't pass notice, of course, that Mary was the very first of our Queen who blazes a trail that people like Elizabeth will follow. Well, very first Queen, if you don't count good Queen Jane, of course. Then we take a bit of a pause. We've got seven episodes from 280 to 286 before moving on to Elizabeth. And we take a long, hard look at Tudor England from the bottom up rather than the top down. The hundred years after Mary are a period of continuous population growth, which leads to profound economic and social changes and are arguably the anti-room of capitalism. We talk about the politics of the Republic of the Parish 
and the reformation of manners, standing in front of the altar, wearing white, holding a can candle. Only then are we into good Queen Bess from episode 287. She also, like her father and grandfather, is well served by peerless first ministers, in her case, Burley, Robert Cecil and Francis Walsingham. Her first task is to establish the National Church on a firm basis, to see off the last of the Tudor rebellions and take control of her parliament and court, all of which she does with consummate skill and finesse and not a little judicious grumpiness. We've got most of that sorted by episode 300, when we can look a bit wider at the very early start of England's empire, a short abortive foray into slave trading and an eddy into the story of the Black Tudors and indeed an episode on England's Royal Navy. All that's 299 to 302-ish. There's then all the shenanigans about her marriage or lack of it, and the Reformation in Scotland, leading to that dreadful dilemma of what are we going to do about Maria? That story gets woven in along the way, but the axe falls in episode 312. One of the features from here on is the importance of the developing story of Ireland, England and then Britain's first colony as it has been called. So we must cover the Elizabethan conquest of Ireland when everything starts to get nasty basically, which I cover in episodes 303, 304 and then later Hugo O'Neill's revolt in 318. And of course, We've got all the good stuff along the way. Drake's circumnavigation, the war with Spain, the Armada and all that, until Bess comes to an end in episode 321. What a great story. As per normal, the series ends with a review of European history to set us up for the next series, which is four episodes worth, until series six and the arrival of the Stuarts comes to pass at episode 325. OK, enough already. We have arrived gentle listeners, all at a thoroughly fascinating reign, that of Mary Tudor, Mary I, the very first Queen of England. Before I go on, here is the general plan. We're going to bash on until the end of Mary's reign, but then we're going to pause a little. We're going to talk less of cabbages and kings and more of shoes and ships and sealing wax of the ordinary lives and traditions of the English in the 16th century. Because I am rather conscious that we've gone very political and while it's true to say that the century is turbulent politically, it's no bowl of cherries in a social and economic sense either, no sir. So, something to look forward to then. However, there will be further abuse of the simple chronology before that, so sorry. Because on the 21st of March falls the anniversary of a very significant event, which plot I shall not spoil. So, I will want to make sure we get to that on the nearest Sunday, which is the 17th of March, and then on the day itself, I have an interview with a special guest with which to delight you. So I shall release the subsequent week's episode early that would normally have been on the 24th. OK, now then, Mary Tudor. The Tudors are fun, are they not, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, I know that some of you in England who did the Blessed Tudors at school for Key Stage 2 or 3 or whatever, for GCSE and then maybe A-level, and are forced to watch innumerable dramas and stuff on TV... Maybe you're feeling just a little jaded right now about the Tudors. But not me, I'm afraid to say. As far as I'm concerned, it's as much fun as a pan-galactic gargle blaster, though I am worried about the hangover maybe just as much. The reason they are so fun is that there is so much historical controversy, so much revisionism. As far as Mary is concerned, 
Everyone knew what they thought, for centuries. All the cards were once firmly settled in the hands in the right order, but now everyone is delightedly playing 52-card pick-up again, as though England's life depended on it. So, as I sit at my desk, like Thomas Hardy in front of a good-natured bank holiday crowd in Dorchester, body straight, shoulders relaxed, pen held lightly but firmly in the right hand, I am ready. Let me start by giving you two quotes. Let's start with John Fox, since that's a very fine place to start. We shall never find any reign of any prince in this land or any other, which did ever show in it, for the proportion of time, so many great arguments of God's wrath and displeasure, as were to be seen in the reign of this Queen Mary, whether we behold the shortness of her time or the unfortunate event of all her purpose. John Fox did not stop there, going on to describe in gruesome detail what he described as the horrible and bloody time of Queen Mary. And so was handed to later school teachers and children's stories the gem that is the nickname Bloody Mary. Although Sellers and Yateman's school child struggled with the name, of course, and called her Broody Mary instead. OK, so we'll come back to the image-making of Foxy and his chumps in a moment. What about this, then? Also a contemporary opinion. A bleak childhood a persecuted adolescence, a harassed and suffering maturity, produced the woman who was to go down to posterity unwept, unhonoured and unsung. Her many admirable qualities, her absolute sincerity, her fine integrity, her high courage, lofty and abiding, qualities of leadership, princely qualities, were deadened by a fatal lack of that subtle appeal that awakens popular sympathy. These are the words of a Venetian ambassador called Giovanni Micelli. Ah, oh, wish I spoke Italian. And it is interesting to me that the second quote is very much more likely to have people nodding their heads these days than the first, or I suspect so anyway. And I'll explain why later, although part of it, of course, is probably that these days we are a much more secular society and therefore see her through a very different lens. Anyway, back in the day, immediately after Mary's death, there was no time for nuance. I may be falling prey to melodrama when I say that a new breed of English patriotism was forged in the fires of Mary's religious persecutions, but there is enough truth in the statement for me to get away with it. As Elizabeth came to the throne, there was a job to be done as far as the Protestant reformers were concerned. And we are now, by the way, going to pick the splinters from our collective cheeks and come down from the fence of terminology and use the word Protestant since the more common use of the word is made common currency through Mary's reign. So I can stop pussyfooting around with, you know, evangelicals, reformists and all that kind of malarkey. The Protestants had received a nasty shock. All the way through Edward's reign, it had been a beautiful morning and things had been going their way. Now, suddenly, things had been violently reversed. Not only had they been violently reversed, they had seen that a very fair proportion of the English had welcomed the return to the old religion with some enthusiasm, though maybe not the return to Rome so much. It was time to use the courage and sacrifice of the Protestant martyrs to form the vanguard of a new Protestant army, an army that would create a better world. And the circumstances were all in their favour, for not only did Elizabeth choose a Protestant direction and therefore allow their publicity plenty of oxygen, but England began to look increasingly isolated in the European world, and increasingly vulnerable to enemies 
who were very public and unequivocal in their desire to bring England back to control of Rome, even if it meant taking a pot shot at her anointed monarch. Pope, I'm looking at you. It is important not to misrepresent John Fox here. It's very easy with modern sensibilities to write him off as a kind of mad preacher figure, bit of a nutter. He was not, really. He was motivated by a genuine admiration for his subjects, an entirely shared desire to protect his fellow English from God's wrath, and was a better and more honest historian than most of his opponents would like to admit, though always to be treated with care. He is not an objective observer. In addition, unlike most of his Protestant friends and Catholic opponents, he found the whole burning thing abhorrent. So his arguments against Mary were not just some crude act of nationalism or revenge, because as he wrote, By her may be advertised and learned. What a dangerous thing it is for men and women in authority, upon blind zeal and opinion, to stir up persecution in Christ's church to the shedding of Christian blood. For a man very often seen as some weird, archaic and incomprehensible figure of an alien world, it's a remarkably modern statement and opinion. So, snaps to old Foxy. However, Fox did indeed, in 1563, produce the third leg that supported English Protestantism for the next three or four hundred years or so in the Acts and Monuments, or the Book of Martyrs, as is it often called, joining the English Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. History is written by the winners, it is said, though I'm not sure that is always true, discuss. But it is certainly true to say that as Protestantism became one of the fundamental pillars of the English nation, Fox's hatchet job on Mary's reputation was complete, unchallengeable and irreversible, or so it seemed. The Whig view of history, to which we keep referring, saw Protestantism as an essential component of the march to progress and enlightenment, and Messrs Seller and Yeatman summed it up just brilliantly in the phrase... Broody Mary's reign was, however, a bad thing, since England is bound to be C of E, so all the executions were wasted. Jane Austen's little bit of fun history was equally damning in a slightly different way. Jane, by the way, seems to have been a big fan of Mary Queen of Scots, and I mean big with a capital B, capital F, and so by comparison with her, everyone was a loser. Nor can I pity the kingdom the misfortunes they experienced during her reign, since they fully deserve them for having allowed her to succeed her brother. Which is, you know, a little harsh, I would say, but then the judgment of the young often is. When I was that age, there were no bands worthy of the name when stood in comparison to the mighty Zepp. Though, of course, that is a statement that remains largely accurate, even with the wisdom of age. The Protestant story, then, was not a fair, careful and judicious assessment of the rights and wrongs of the situation, as is often the way of things in times of crisis. And if you would like confirmation of that fact, sign up to Twitter and access the debate by typing in hashtag Brexit. But make sure before you do that you have a nice pair of earplugs, a nice cup of tea, and if at all possible, a warm buttered crumpet or two. Because it is by and large quite impossible for the world to be threatening while wrapping your tonsils round a warm buttered crumpet. The problems start when the crumpets are finished, but that's another story. Anyway, the point I was trying to make was that the Protestant story through the book at Mary, and I mean the book, the whole book, and considerably more than the book. It's not just that Mary was an evil, brutal and sadistic burner of innocent people, who all of them, to a man and woman, loved puppies and were kind to children. She was also wildly incompetent and practically a traitor, if a queen could be a traitor. Her administration was blundering and lacked innovation. She was in cahoots with the Spaniards and the Pope, 
And although neither of those people wore jackboots, if they had, the English would have been under them. The word cahoot, by the way, is the most attractive one, I'm sure you'll agree, so I looked it up on the OED. It is apparently the American side of the family who introduced it into the global and shared language that is English, and there is a dispute, gentle listener, about its origin. It is indisputably French, but the big enders figure it comes from a cohort, which makes sense, you know, a group sort of a thing, or shout, a word for a type of cabinet. I'm going for the latter. In cahoots has a slightly sinister meaning, doesn't it? So I'm thinking of Fox shivering with horror as he visualises Mary stuffed bent-necked into a small stuffy cabinet with the Pope and Philip plotting the downfall of all good Protestants. Now, if you cast your minds back to the days of Anne Boleyn in what I believe is probably called the dim and distant, you might remember the survival of two traditions defined by religion. In one, she was a Protestant saviour. In the other, she had a sticky outy tooth, an unattractive wart and a sixth finger. Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being very low, how surprised would you be to learn that there was a very different tradition about Mary maintained by Catholic commentators? I'm guessing we're down around the minus 3s or 4s. Although our quote from Giovanni earlier mentioned a certain lack of charisma in Mary, she was well able to inspire personal loyalty. So, let me take you to Bishop White, installed by Mary as the Bishop of Winchester after Stephen Gardner croaked, who after his mistress's death and the accession of the new Queen Elizabeth, remarked with a broad vein of snark that the new Queen was a lady of great virtue whom we are bound to obey, for, you know, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Which I think gives the phrase damning with faint praise a new lease of life. Elizabeth had a sense of humour failure over that one, by the way. And then, back to the very originator of the sticky-outy-tooth-and-wart thing, Nicholas Sander, as you might expect, he spoke out for his people. Gone was Mary the persecutor, and in her place was Mary the pious, gentle and noble and slightly sad victim, who simply did the very best she could, but whose virtues were unfortunately wasted on an ungrateful nation of heretics. So, the battle lines were drawn, but it was not, sadly, a very even battle. For a series of Protestant commentators, the story was a simple one. They had suffered persecution and unjust oppression. They had freed themselves from it. Catholicism and that oppression were therefore one and the same thing. Since freeing themselves from oppression, they had come together as a nation, defeated their enemies, notably Spain, and won their right to survive, and had thrived. So, not only was Catholicism the symbol of oppression, it was also the symbol of foreign domination to the point of existential threat. There is a weird parallel with Ireland, just the other way around, in that Protestantism in Ireland became the symbol of foreign oppression and Catholicism that of freedom. At the same time then, since England appeared to flourish, from a political and economic perspective at least, Protestantism also became the symbol of progress. And so, rather helpfully, the Whig tradition of unending progress towards the shining light of the British Empire could be combined with Protestantism. It was the will of God, effectively. Here is J.A. Froude, a Victorian Anglican historian. Those of you with a queasy disposition might like to look away now. The Catholics, therefore, were permitted to continue their cruelties until the cup of iniquity was full, till they had taught the educated laity of England to regard them with horror, until the Romanist superstition had died amid the execrations of the people of its own excess. Golly. 
Unfortunately, the Catholic side of the argument was much less clear than this nice, simple dialectic from the Prots. And before we go on, let's be clear, this argument about Mary for the most of its history did break down along that denominational fault line. So the problem for Catholic historians was that very English and then British success. They could hardly claim the will of God unless God was moving in a quite exceptionally mysterious way. And they couldn't bring themselves to condemn Mary for alienating her people by burning an unprecedented number of them for heresy against Catholicism. No, her failure was to be a tragedy. And the reason for that tragedy was the Spanish marriage. Mary's downfall was her devotion to Philip. Now, that's all very well and conveniently removes the need to look the small matter of the fires of Smithfield in the face. So as late as the 1950s, Father Philip Hughes would lament that she had sacrificed to Spain either herself or the prospects of restoring the Catholicism still latent in the souls of her people. The problem with this is that it presents a picture of Mary that while it is maybe less of the evil persecutor, it's not much better than a misguided and besotted loser who made a rubbish choice based on personal impulse. And personally, if I were Mary, I think I'd rather be hung for a wolf than this rather feeble lamb. By the 20th century, the battleground was religion generally, not Mary. No one was really interested in her. Like Edward, actually, Mary's reign also suffers from the problems of a wedgie, of being wedged between the monstrous buttocks that are the reigns of Henry and Elizabeth, if you'll pardon the slightly indelicate metaphor. Not sure I want to hold Henry's buttocks in my mind's eye, actually. And did Gloriana, mother of her people, actually have buttocks? I'm wandering to Jonathan Swift and the beautiful Celia Territory, for which I refer you to Swift's poem, The Ladies' Dressing Room, and Strephon's appalled discovery about the object of his desire. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Anyway, where was I? So, yes, Mary has really very few defenders. To the Protestant, she's an evil oppressor, and to the Catholic, she's an incompetent loser. I imagine, I exaggerate, of course, I'm sure there was more than one opinion on each side, but, you know, history is all about selecting the truth you tell, is it not? That was the general thrust of the arguments, is what I'm saying. Until 1901, when a convert to Catholicism called Jean Stone wrote The History of Mary I, Queen of England which has been described as hagiography, but brought a few elements into play. A focus on Mary herself, a sympathetic approach, and the issue of gender. It's impossible to consider Mary's history without including gender and the trail that she blazed for the role of queens in English history. Mary was England's first sovereign queen, the likes of Saxburger and Matilda don't count, and the way she approached and established her authority had a significant impact on her sister's succession. Although... That wasn't really Jean Stone's story, to be fair. Her story was of the woman beleaguered and alone, betrayed by greedy and unscrupulous men around her, the sort of story being written about Mary, Queen of Scots at the moment. Jean's biography didn't really achieve the ascent in the bestseller list she might have liked, but she was at least a voice crying alone and preparing the way and all that, if I can use a suitably biblical metaphor, until others followed with more effective attempts. 
which is in 1940, What Happened, with Helen Prescott's book, Spanish Tudor. Mary in this biography, which became a standard work, was back to being a Renaissance princess with all the politics and decision-making that that implies, but who in the end could not prevail against the disadvantages of her gender in the patriarchal world. We are now in the 1950s and beyond, and the nature of historical writing and research has changed with much more emphasis on sources and research into the documentation and evidence and all that good stuff. But sadly, the conclusions of scholars weren't changing very much. Mary was still something of a loser who made some disastrous decisions, particularly in the Spanish marriage. From here, though, the historical debate was definitely broadening and deepening. Generally, the histories of some key people associated were being revised. Cardinal Reginald Poole, the Archbishop of Canterbury of the Intray, and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury of the Outtray, and of Stephen Gardner. Religious inquiry was focusing more on the people and their attitudes with the work of the great A.G. Dickens. It began to seem as though Mary and her councillors were rather more in control of the Church of England than Mary's policy of obedience to Rome would indicate, but also rather more successful. And David Lodes made the point that Mary's pursuit of two really unpopular policies while also facing the disadvantages of being a female monarch rather demonstrated the great strength of the English crown. And he also built a picture that religion was rather less important in Renaissance politics than we had assumed. Although there's more nuance in the debate then, I would refer you to the film Elizabeth in 1998 and the depiction of Mary which Cathy Burke delivered. In that film, Mary is bigoted, stupid, desperate and at best a pitiful victim. And there is much still of this picture of Mary, added to which the feminist angle, if I can call it that, was now rather holding her responsible for failing to break the patriarchal mould, which is a little mean. However, chip, 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 chip away at the wall. David Lodes began to show that her financial policy was actually rather effective in the early years of her reign. It was only blown away by involvement in the French War later. In the noughties, a whole array of books about Mary and her reign came out. David Lodes, Linda Porter, the Catholic polemicist Eamon Duffy, Judith Richards. In terms of religion, it came to be much more widely recognised that there was more to the Catholic revival than simply stern reimposition of the old rules from above, with the winds of the Counter-Reformation blowing across England through the pipe that was Reginald Poole, and through an effective group of new Catholic bishops that had replaced Teen Cranmer. Andrew Pettigree argued that under Mary, English Protestantism was reduced once again to a persecuted remnant. Many of its ablest figures taking refuge abroad to avoid martyrdom, the fate of those whom remained behind. The only real resistance to the establishment of Catholicism seemed to be when it came close to the thing the aristocracy really cared about, namely their wallets, and the danger of having to return all that confiscated crown land. Judith Richards also tackled a number of the central planks upon which Mary's bad reputation stood. Principal among these was the gender one. Actually, she argued, that the impediments and obstacles to a female becoming the monarch and attitudes generally towards women in positions of authority has been overstated. She did this by starting with the pronouncement by John Knox, which is repeated constantly. And why not? Because it's something of a classic, the sort of quote that pulls you up short and makes you realise just how far the past is a foreign country. This comes from the, shall we say, provocatively entitled paper, First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. 
I shall not try to read in the style of David Tennant, who, by the way, did an excellent job of playing Knox in the 2018 Mary Queen of Scots film. To promote a woman to bear rule, superiority, dominion or empire above any realm, nation or city is repugnant to nature. Contumely to God a thing most contrarious to his revealed will and approved ordinance. And finally, it is the subversion of good order, of all equity and justice. Golly. Actually, though, actually, though, Richards demonstrated that even then, this was a most extreme view. That society was provided with examples of women in positions of authority in commerce and the landed nobility, as well as influence at court. And that anyway, birth trumped gender in Mary's case. But none of this was to belittle Mary's role, very much the opposite. It was just to clear away some of the myth and detritus lying around the floors of the barn of history. She came to praise Mary, not to bury her. Because more important was Mary being active, assiduous and intelligent in making sure that as Queen she exercised royal power in no way diminished from that she'd have had had she been a bloke. She touched for the king's evil, scrofula, although that was supposed to be a male talent. She dressed with all the magnificence that her male predecessor had proved was so important. She had an impeccable personal reputation. And critically, the deal she imposed on Philip of Spain made it crystal clear that she, not he, exercised royal power in England, a level of hard-headedness that belied the idea of a hopelessly besotted loser, and of which Mary Queen of Scots might have taken note. Thus, Richard concludes that the clarity with which Mary enacted and embodied female monarchy from the start of her reign as being fully as powerful as male, has been too easily dismissed. She points out that Elizabeth would be able to walk into a role where all the spade work about what a queen should be had been dug, all the battles about wielding full sovereignty had been fought, and allowed Elizabeth to slide her feet easily into the slippers of Tudor power. Other studies then pointed out that Mary had to deal with the double whammy of harvest failure and plague, and must be assessed against the background of that encouragement to rebellion. And then folks took on all the stuff about the burnings. Here's John Guy from as far back as 1984. We should be beware of the bias of John Fox and other Protestant writers writing in Elizabeth's reign. It is true that Mary burned a minimum of 287 persons. But the leading Protestant martyrs, Ridley, Latimer and Cranmer, were as much the victims of straightforward political revenge. Secondly, we should appreciate that many of the Marian martyrs would have been burned by Henry VIII. Martyrs in inverted commas, by the way. By 16th century standards, there was nothing exceptional about Mary's reign of terror. Even the scale of Mary's persecution may have been exaggerated, for the figures come from the biased fox, who reported the same examples twice wherever possible. So, good golly, Miss Molly, North has become South and we have a Queen of unparalleled goodness and competence. Anyway, the Marian persecutions were just an accepted byproduct of being part of the Tudor world. From zero to hero, job done. Wham, bam, thank you, Sam. Now, who should we have a go at next? Well, not quite. In fact, none of the arguments ever managed to get round a few inconvenient facts that keep pulling everyone back from the excesses of revisionism. Hate it or loathe it, the Marian persecutions were a fact. 
We've noted before that England does a poor job of murdering its own citizens, judged by continental standards of the day. But nonetheless, this was, I have said, the greatest of religious persecutions in English history. John Guy's argument was a little weak, wasn't it? Dismissing the likes of Latimer and Cranmer as political revenge doesn't really paint Mary in any better light, even if you accept the argument. The relationship between Mary and the Habsburgs was surely quite remarkable, especially early in the reign. One line of revisionism bigs up the significance that the imperial ambassador did not come to sit on her council, a remarkable argument, since that would have been a quite bizarre situation. However firm a treaty Mary imposed on Philip, the fact remains that it was an extraordinarily unpopular move, and she had fair warning that it was going to be. And it did indeed drag England into a war. Where we seem to sit now seems to be with a recognition that the old bigoted and stupid Mary thing is confined to popular legend. And give another 150 years of hard work and ceaseless promotion, maybe the historians will even have an impact on the popular reputation of Mary. Who knows? Now, we have a hard-working, dedicated, brave and conscientious queen, firmly hewn from the Tudor mould of regality, with whom it is possible to have a lot of sympathy. But even Anna Whitelock's recent biography, which is super positive again, ends up with the story, essentially, of a tragic failure. So there, gentle listeners, is our situation. And we, of course, assuming you accept the challenge, will be spending some time going through her reign, and you can make up your own minds. I shall summarise some of the discussion points you might carefully note down for further study and review in a quiet moment when you have your feet up, a glass of Nuki Brown or Pinot Grigio held reflectively in one hand. Was Mary the Renaissance queen, the learned humanist, tolerant to all who conformed outwardly, or was she Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Not the dullard of legend, nonetheless critically, mentally inflexible and stubborn. Was the Spanish marriage a mistake to which anything would have been preferable, whether marriage to the available English chinless wonder, or was it a brilliant and possibly unavoidable policy of alliance that only went wrong due to Harold Macmillan's dictum, events, dear boy, events? Was Mary's part in the extended okie-cokie that was the English Reformation a rip-roaring success, only ruined by her regrettable failure to murder her sister and to live for more than six years? Or was there no end in sight to the persecutions and growing evidence of their unpopularity? Was Mary the incompetent queen of legend, sublimating everything to keeping the home fires of religion burning, allowing a council to be at war with itself and undue influence from a foreign power? Was she actually rather well served by ministers who would prove their success by continuing to serve into Elizabeth's reign? Essentially, do we go for Whiggish Winnie? 
The tragic interlude of her reign was over. It had sealed the conversion of the English people to the Reformed faith. Or do we prefer Anna Whitelock? Mary was the Tudor trailblazer, a political pioneer whose reign redefined the English monarchy. You might have other questions, and if you do, answers on a postcard and all that. Next week, then, we start Mary's reign and she gets stuck into those heretics with due dispatch. Until then, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Grateful thanks to my beloved members for your support. I really appreciate it. To all of you who have written in to the website, Facebook and email. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>